Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. It's lingering that separates the men from the boys. And those that will choose to remain with him. <laughs> Many people are content just to sense his presence and and rush on. But then there's those that he is too valuable to them to go on without him. Sometimes the Lord sits still just to see if you're content to go on without him. But those that will remain with him, they testify to him that he is all that they desire. The Lord waits. He watches to see whose heart is whole enough to stay with him. It's easy to offend the spirit by just rushing on. But to follow in its most fundamental principle is to stay behind. Not to walk beside or before, but to be behind. This is the beautiful principle of abiding in him remaining behind him know how I love your name oh how I love your name I worship the most fundamental part of an everyday experience of God is to value him enough to not go on without him. That looks like taking time to look at him. It looks like taking time to do nothing but be with him it is self-sufficiency that is the greatest opposition to God nothing is so opposed to God as self-sufficiency self-sufficiency does not take time to recognize its own bankruptcy and look to God in dependency. You can tell who really does not want God to rule their lives by who chooses not to take time to look at Him. So, 
the very first principle, the very foundation of a life that experiences God every day is this deep poverty. This dependency. I refuse to go on without you, Lord. I'm bankrupt without you. I'm poor and I'm needy, God. I need you so bad, Lord. And without this deep sense of our poverty, we move in self-sufficiency and our self-religiosity, our self-righteousness, and we we pretend to have it all together. But to be bankrupt is to say, Oh Lord, today, even as yesterday, kiss me again that I may go on living. Without you, I grow stale. Without you, I can't be sustained. You are my keeping. I can't keep me. You must keep me. David says, preserve me, O Lord. You've got to keep me. He starts off saying, I turn my eyes from vain things. And then he ends up saying, oh, Lord, you turn my eyes from vain things. You've got to do it by your power. I I yield to you. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, It's important to note that Jesus is completely God. It's important to note that God completely is responsible for your entire internal makeup. So when Jesus teaches you how to pray, it is God who made this soul teaching it how to connect with him. And when Jesus speaks on prayer, the greatest unmatched matchless teacher Jesus himself says go into your closet and shut the door in other words leave everybody else and then once you've left everybody else to a place of solitude shut the door shut out the noise Remove the potential of even being seen so that you can be as vulnerable and honest as you possibly can. The reality is, is that when we don't spend time looking at him, it's easy to go on in dishonesty, but you can't be dishonest and look at him. To look at him means you have to be completely honest with yourself. This is how we stay clean. It's called walking in the light. And so the very first fundamental thing of a heart that recognizes its deep bankruptcy apart from him is to take time to go be with him. If we do not withdraw with him, We will soon withdraw from him. Most people that tell me they don't have a consistent experience of God, I tell them immediately, God is not responsible for an inconsistent experience of him. 
the ripped open body of Jesus Christ was so that you could receive what was inside of him. Just like you cannot eat a watermelon until it's treated. It's got to be opened. It's got to be split. So it is with Jesus. He was split open on the tree to give you what he was on the inside. So that you could experience the realities of his person. This bankruptcy that chooses to be alone with him. It is what's missing in most people's lives. Because the self-sufficiency makes us continue on without the empowerment of his presence. The new covenant is this. The spirit is now on the inside. The presence of God is now your empowerment. It's your guide. It's your strengthener, your standby, your advocate, your helper, your intercessor. He is all in all for us. And this, in essence, is his presence. His presence leads us. It satisfies us. It directs us. It guides us. His presence now is the entirety of the covenant. Without his presence, without the spirit, the new covenant is empty. Jesus looked at Mary near the tomb and a resurrected, a crucified and resurrected son of God tells Mary not to cling to him. And it always bothered me why Jesus told her, do not cling to me. And I couldn't understand why Jesus would stop someone from grabbing a hold of him, clinging to him. And then I read a little further in the next Sentence. Jesus explains why. He says, because I have not yet ascended. This shows me something that in understanding the ascending, we will understand why he prohibited her. And when we look at John chapter 7, we see Jesus says something extremely interesting. He says, anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Then it says this, he spoke of the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not been glorified. He had not yet ascended to glory. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. He ascended to send. He went on high to bring power from on high. He left in order to be present. The presence of the Spirit continues Christ's presence in the world. And Jesus did not want her just to cling to him because he died. He didn't want her to cling to him because he died and he even rose. He was looking to show her the fullness of this entire covenant is receiving the Spirit. He died. He rose. He ascended and sent the Spirit of the new covenant. So that in the new covenant, you could have the reality of God's presence, not just as an add-on, but the source of your life. And satisfaction is not just kind of a side issue. It's the very means 
by which he frees you and empowers you to be able to obey him. In other words, without the sweet satisfaction that his presence gives to your heart, you're still bound to all kinds of other things. His presence frees you from the need to have anything else. And now you feel free. And you're able to be led because you're not clinging to all these other things. There's only one thing. His presence frees us from all these other needs. I'm telling you the plague of all these needs. People want this and want that. And we want to see him do this. And we want him to do that. But just to receive his presence will free you from the need to have anything else. And it's that freedom that enables a man to be able to be led by God because he's not altered by ulterior motives. He can be led freely because all he wants is the Lord. So the sending of the Spirit not only frees you, but it empowers you. The Bible tells us to put to death the deeds of this body by the presence of God. In other words, the fires of your passions are quenched by the rain of His presence. People come to me and say, I can't get free from this, I can't get free from that. I tell them there's only one answer. It's called the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. It doesn't mean you might, find, you might find a little bit of happiness in His presence. No, no, no. It's fullness of joy. In other words, fullness means there's no place for anything else. It's a full cup. You can't even add to it. You are overflowing with joy. The presence of the Lord causes an eruption of joy on the inside. And not just joy, but it says pleasures forevermore. Many of us Christians think, where is all this joy? Where is all this pleasures? It's in His presence. (laughs) Herein is the reason why so many people are, quote, in Christ, yet don't experience the things in Christ. It's because they're not fellowshipping with Him. It is in fellowship that we enjoy the riches of the divine life. The riches of the person of Jesus are plunged by experiential fellowship with Him. I'm telling you right now that I believe with all my heart that Jesus is really risen from the dead. And he has literally given us his spirit. And to believe this is to be free. There isn't a thought that can go through your head that is as high and glorious as this. God has given me his own spirit to live by. And I'm telling you, every single one of your problems go back to a failure to believe this. All of the issues of mankind have one universal solution, His person. 
He brings us to these points in our lives where we look for an answer. And then he shows us that the answer all along was him. (laughs) And so you go from revelation of him to another situation that brings you to another revelation of him. And then you go to another one that brings you to another revelation of him. And you thought it was really about this, but it really was about him. And you say, no, but Eric, the problem that I'm facing isn't about a revelation of him. No, it really is. No, Eric, it has nothing to do with him, really. No, it has everything to do with him. And you'll realize it once the answer comes through. You'll say, holy moly, you are the only thing I ever needed. And the only thing I ever really wanted, I didn't even know. Listen, I'm telling you, some of you have been asking God for things and he has not given it to you. And some of you have been offended by him not giving that thing to you. I'm telling you, Most of the reason why he doesn't do it is wrapped up and he knows you better than you know you. You think you want it. And he says, no, you don't know you. You think you do. But I know you in all of your places. I know you in all of your faces. I know you in all of your phases. I know you where you'll be. I know where you were. I know everything. If I don't give it to you, you don't want it. Some of us get to the point where we're afraid to give things to God. We're like, oh, Lord, I don't know if I want to give this to you. I'm afraid. You know, we're like, out of fear for their safety, we won't offer them to God. But I'm telling you this, nothing is safe that is not offered to God. There is nothing in jeopardy like something that is not offered to God. There is nothing as dangerous as trying to hold something behind your back like he don't see it he sees it and sometimes there are people who are honest enough to tell God what's really on the inside instead of pretending he doesn't see what's in their hearts and when God finds a man like this that kind of honesty transparency integrity before him causes him to smile I'm telling you, God would rather you be completely, ruthlessly honest with him than to go on with your facade and fake mask and pretend like everything's all right. Because only when you open it up and say, come on in, Lord, can he develop that area for his own name's sake. I'm telling you right now, the areas we let his presence into, he can develop. The areas we won't let his presence into, he cannot develop. And this is the reason why some people are completely lopsided. They're totally developed in, I won't say totally, they're magnificently developed in one area and totally lop flopping on the other area. And here is the reason. Wherever we won't let his presence in, that's the part he can't develop. It's his presence. I want to be fully developed, don't you? How many know that no matter who you are, if you're 8 or 88, God has a plan specifically for you? Oh, yeah, Eric, I'm already aware of his plan for me. Great. But let me tell you what lies beneath every assignment. It is an image. The Bible says he predestined us to be conformed 
to the image of his son. He's bringing many sons to glory. He's looking to fashion and form you like his son. This is his ultimate desire. And there's only one way for this glorious image to start its work in and through your life. You want to know what it is? It's the only other place in the scriptures where the image is mentioned and it's here. When we behold him, we're being transformed into the same image. You want to be like God? The key is only wanting God. You want to be like God? The the key is looking at God. The more we look to him, we become like him. That's why everything that's happening to you right now in your life is trying to deviate your gaze. Most people's problems are simply a deviated gaze. They're just off a little bit. But if we could keep our eyes fixed and set, and this is what coming to him every day will do. Somebody asked me one day, Eric, how do you know if someone's developing in God? How do you know if they're being developed I told them, enjoying him every day. That's how you know somebody is developing in God. How can you tell when someone's frozen when they don't enjoy God every day? Yeah, but this person looks like they have more fruit than this person. You don't understand what fruit is. Some people think fruit is results. It is not. Fruit is not results. Fruit is obedience. (laughs) Otherwise, Jeremiah was fruitless. (laughs) No. Obedience to the living voice. That's what changes things. Somebody brought up downstairs in the green room how Jesus said, I delight to do your will. Literally, your will is food for me. And in the same way, Jesus didn't just recognize the types of things God was into doing and then he just jumped on every opportunity. He had to do something that's kind of like what God would do. No, he was synced and linked with the current of God's voice. What do you mean, Eric? The current voice of God brings you into the current of God. The current like water flow is the current speaking. What is he saying? This means you've got to listen to him. This means he's put everything upon and hinges everything upon relationship with him. So that you cannot simply master principles, but you must have his presence. Many people master principles and they see things happen. But this is not what we're after. We're after his person. And his person is linked with his presence. So we listen, we see, we act upon what we've experienced from him. Jesus looked at the disciples and he said to them as he washed their feet, he said, as I have done to you, so you do. He reveals to us something that in order for them to ever be able to do for someone else, he must first have done it to them. Eric, I don't understand. You can't give to anyone what Jesus hasn't first given to you. You can't reflect the light greater than what you've seen. You can't 
You cannot go and do the things that he has not done to you. In order to love others, you must first receive God's love. At night, I try to put my little one to sleep. I've told this story many times. I love this story. And I try to kiss her on her neck when she's going to sleep and she gets tickled and she pushes me away. And one night I said this phrase. And when I said it, the Lord like took the statement and threw it back through me. You ever had something like this where you say something to someone and you're like, man, God is saying that to me right now. I tried to kiss her and I said to her, if you don't let me kiss you, there's no way for you to love me. And when I said this, I felt God said the same thing to me. If you don't let me kiss you, then there's simply no way for you to love me. You must receive my direct, intimate, loving contact for you to be able to even desire me. It takes God to even love God. It takes God to want God. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Eric, I hear all this language, this intimacy talk, and I just don't have those feelings. I don't weep at the name. I don't have sweet love songs that I sing with God by myself and weep unto Him. I don't have this kind of a life. I'm telling you right now, the safest thing to say is, Lord, I don't love you. Help me love you. I see where I am and I see where my heart really is and what I'm really interested in, but I want to watch you. Help me love you. The Lord will come in and he will love this and he will pick you up and he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does this incredible work talked about in Romans 5, verse 5, and it says, the love of God is bursting into the heart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and your heart gushes with love for God. I'll tell you one of the greatest ways to tell if someone's filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't think it's tongues. I think it's when a heart is in love with Jesus. When a person begins to speak about him and a tear drips down their face. And they say, I didn't love him, but now I do. I didn't know him, but now I do. He captivated my heart. I'm captured by him. There's nowhere else for me to go. I only want him. Whether it cost me my entire life, I want him and only him. But I'm telling you right now, guys, the first and most important thing in our lives will always be our experience of God. People say to me sometimes, Eric, you emphasize experience way too much. And when I read through the Bible, the entire thing from Genesis to Revelation is just showing me that men can experience God. The entire thing is trying to tell me one message. Men, man and his God, they really love each other. Men love God. They just don't, they don't have it. They've lost touch with him. They've lost the reality of his presence. But when they see him and the blinders are taken off they realize oh you are him whom my soul longs for and I have found you and I will not let you go I, I want you forever and only you only you forever I forsake all others and I keep only to you this is the natural response to a heart that has seen him in his beauty 
I'm telling you, people say worship is a state of mind. No, it's not. It's a response to seeing the majesty, the beauty and the splendor and the glory of a risen Christ who looks like God. Oh, Jesus. I'm not interested in anything else, Lord. I I pray, Lord, that everything in my heart and in my friends' hearts here that is not in keeping with first love, I pray, Lord, it just melt off, Lord. Just let it so easy, so simple. Let it go in your precious name so they can be free to enjoy you and have joy. The Bible tells us be joyful always, not five days out of the week. Be joyful all the time. Pray continually. Let your heart be going up unto God. And then the last thing it says right there is, and in everything give thanks. Oh, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. I thank you, Lord, for my health. I thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. I thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. I remember them. I thank you for the Holy Ghost, your sweet presence. It's something that I do constantly throughout the day. Throughout the day, sometimes when I begin to sense myself unaware of God's presence, do you know what I mean when I say this? You begin to become unaware of God's presence because you're being distracted by life. You're letting life distract you. I will say to the Lord, I'll say, be joyful always, and I'll smile. And I'll say, that's right. I have joy by the Holy Spirit. Pray continually. Oh, I give you glory and honor. I worship you. And in everything, give thanks. Lord, I thank you. I begin to say thank you. I find that a lot of times my bad attitude is connected to ingratitude. Wherever there's ingratitude that begins to go into my heart, a bad attitude starts to come out. And I find also that whenever I stop the flow, the revolution of prayer that goes up and out unto God, whenever I stop that up, what I'm doing in essence is trying to quench the flame of the Spirit. What does it mean, Eric? Are you trying to say that we should live in communion with God? Yeah. I am. Are you trying to say that you've mastered it? No. Are you, do you think you ever will? Probably not, but I will do my dead level best to enjoy him as much as I possibly can. Here's my goal in life, to try to exhaust the inexhaustible riches of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. People say, what's your goal in your uh, spiritual life? My goal in my spiritual life is just that. I'm trying to exhaust Jesus. And people say to me all the time, well, what's your, what's your stance on, uh, what's your stance on pre-trib, post-trib, you know, where you stand on all that rapture stuff? Listen, I'll get to those things after I've exhausted the riches of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, you guys remember the thing I said that's most important, the very first thing for a life of prayer? Do you remember what it was? It is that we must recognize our bankruptcy. This is number one. As a matter of fact, when you forget this, you won't pray. Number one, I recognize I am bankrupt without you. I am deeply in need of you. This is called poverty. Jesus names it poverty. And then he says, 
and builds his entire Sermon on the Mount upon one statement, one foundational statement upon which everything else that he preaches stands on. And it's this, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the king's domain, the king's domain, the dominating king and his dominion, all the things that are inside of the reality of the king and his rule, they belong to the poor one. What is prayer except entering into the many mansions of the kingdom of God? The Bible tells us, Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions, many rooms. Then he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's trying to tell us something that inside of the wonderful prayer life are many rooms and mansions of God's person that can be explored inexhaustibly. You find him brand new every day. People tell me all the time, Eric, the honeymoon period with God ends. No, it doesn't. With a person and person, you have two flawed people. It's easy to get to the end of another flawed human. But Jesus is perfect. And he is brand new every morning. And he makes all things new. It's impossible to look at Jesus and not love him. He's so incredibly breathtaking that to gaze upon him is to be stricken breathless by the overwhelming conviction that he is unlike anything anyone has ever seen before he is the highest and maximum pleasure of life the second thing that is most important in coming to God after you've said to yourself I recognize this day before my feet even hit the ground I need you God I know where I go without you And every temptation is a reminder of what I am apart from you. So before I even, my legs even hit the ground, I say, Lord, I deeply need you. The next thing I believe is very important is what I would call stillness. What do you mean by stillness? I want to demystify this word because some people think this or that when you say it. But it just means singleness. It just means a single desire. It means everything else away. I want you. It means all my other thoughts and all my other plans, all the other important things, it's not time for them right now. It's time to only give you all of my attention. It's singleness it's attentiveness it is the refusal to give attention to anything else and it is the removal of your attention from everything else this is called stillness a lot of the old church writers used to practice stillness some called it silence some called it contemplation some called it many different types of things but when it comes down to it all it really is It's just giving God all of your attention. And I'm telling you why this is so important. It's because the plague inside of the closet is being there, not yet present. Yet not present. (laughs) Did you hear that? So many people go into the closet and they're there, yes, but they're not there. They're there, but they're not present. Sometimes my wife will say to me, if my mind is on 
some other things, she'll look at me and say, where are you? I'm here, but I'm not here. And the Lord says this to me many times. That sometimes in worship, when it's, when it's going and I'm singing and I'm doing the worship stuff, the Lord will ask me sometimes, where are you? Though I'm singing and though the song is there and though the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm not present. I'm not looking in his eyes. I'm looking in his direction. Do you understand? Sometimes I'll say to the Lord, I'll be, I'll be with the Lord and I'll be doing all these things and then finally I'll get down to the point where I'm just tired and I'll remember, oh, this entire time and I haven't once looked at you. This entire time I've done all of these things but never once did I actually lay on you. Never once did I actually honestly look at you with my heart. Attentiveness is indispensable. Why? Because attentiveness makes adoration real. Without attentiveness, adoration is incomplete. And adoration is so important because it's the beginning, it's the sustaining, and it's the end. Adoration is everything. It's air in the kingdom of God. Adoration is the center of prayer. Adoration is the opening up of the receptivity of the soul. To receive God on the inside, it's adoration and adoration alone that opens it. Adoration puts God where he's supposed to be and puts you where you're supposed to be. So that's why attentiveness is so important, so you can adore him. And a lot of people, they don't adore him, so they go in and they come out the same way they came in because they did everything but adore him. They said their prayers, they read their chapter, they even cried out for stuff, they told the Lord their needs, and then they went on, and never once did they say, holy are you, wonderful, majestic one, I give you all of my heart. Never once does their heart actually go up to him in adoration, captive, literally stricken, breathless, by awe and wonder of who he actually is. A.W. Tozer started every morning of his life by laying on the ground for about an hour, just keeping his heart on the majesty, the supremacy, and the glory of God. I believe it's a wonderful thing to implement. You say, Eric, I don't have a lot of time. Listen, give him whatever you got, and he'll take it. And he'll have a platform to work in your life. If you don't give him anything, there's no platform for him to stand upon. But you give him what you have. And I know many people are in different stages in their lives, but you have to make time for adoration. You take adoration out, and you're just playing games. You take adoration out, and you've only changed your language. You take adoration out, and you're not acting according to the new man. You just put on new clothes. (laughs) You take adoration out, and everything deflates. Adoration is everything. Because it puts you where you belong and him where he belongs. If adoration's not the center, you are. If adoration is not the center, then something else is. So why is attentiveness so important? Because adoration is everything. 
and adoration does this incredible thing. And I'm telling you right now, this is the secret. It's out of adoring God and experiencing God. Here is the secret. And this is the reason why so many people don't experience him or know what bliss even is. It's because they don't adore him. They're spread thin. They're all over the place. I'm telling you, scattered minds are so common. And because scattered minds are so common, the experience of God is so rare. But God deserves all of our attention. And he has the right to demand all of our attention. As a matter of fact, it would be so disrespectful for me to even speak to my wife while looking at something else. It's disrespectful. If somebody speaks to you, it's respect to look at them and give them your attention. And in the same way, God is only asking for us to give him attention And then once we do, I'm telling you, adoration will begin to burst up like a fountain on the inside. I pray for you even now that the mundane things of life will be watered with the wellspring of adoration bursting up. May God strike a rock in your heart and cause a wellspring of life and adoration to come up everywhere, on your wife, on your kids, on your, on your friends, on your workplace, everywhere you go, the marketplace, this adoration is just bursting up like this. And people begin to see, why is this guy a fountain of life for me? Every time I'm around this woman, she's a fountain of life for me. I'm telling you, if you drink of the fountain of his wonderful grace, you'll become a fountain for your family. And they will come and they will drink from you and they will eat from you. And you will literally have to do nothing but just enjoy God. And you will do more on accident than you ever did on purpose. Because you will be the thing. And your face will become radiant. They that look to him are radiant. I'm going to tell you two quick stories about adoration. Then we'll move on to what happens after adoration. I once was preaching in the prisons. When I first started full-time ministry, like again, I told you, I did not go to Bible school to become a minister. I went there because the presence was there, and I was not trying to get into ministry. God spoke to me in 2010, and he said, I want you to speak for me. And so I quit everything, and I started to preach everywhere I could. One of the places I got into was the 33rd Street Jail. And they were looking for people to preach to these guys because nobody really wanted to. And I would go into the cell like this. They would shut the door behind me and I would yell out, does anybody want to talk about Jesus? Somebody would say, F you. And a finger would come out of a... And then all of a sudden, some guys would come over to the side. And they'd be like, yeah, we ain't got nothing else to do. And I would uh, talk to these guys about Jesus. Some of them got saved. Some of them got healed. It was wonderful. But on one particular day, I had taken a couple of days. My wife was gone with the kids. I took these days. As a matter of fact, this is something about me, if you want to know something personal about me. Whenever I have open time, the first thing in my mind is, oh, we get to go away, Lord. So my, my, my kids and wife went away and I said, oh, it's a wonderful moment where we can just be together all day, every day. And I locked myself in the bathroom with just a jug of water because I didn't want to have to go anywhere. 
I just, <laughs> I'd read the scriptures and I'd worship and I'd read the scriptures and then I'd worship and I'd read the scripture. No agenda. Wasn't preparing a sermon. And just to hear him, just to be with him and just to enjoy him. No other reason. And Friday came, I, I had been in there three days, and when I came out, and I, I used to do this thing, I still do it sometimes, where I'll set my heart on him in worship like this, and I'll try to hold it as long as I possibly can, and once my eyes start to, my heart begins to get astray, I recognize it, I pull it back, and I hold it. I worship you like this. I adore you, no one, no one, no one like you. Just like this, holding, holding, holding. And then if my mind begins to say, you know, I can't believe that guy said that to me the other day. <laughs> the moment I notice it, I go, oh, God, I worship you. I give you glory and honor. I came out and I, it was time for me to go to the prison. I go to the prison. I open up the prison door or they open the door. They shut the door behind me and I just open, put my hands up and I began to just go, I give you glory and honor. I just started to worship the Lord right, in the, right there in front of all the guys. They're like, here's that crazy white kid again. <laughs> and when I opened my eyes, they were all on their faces on the marble jail floor. I'll never forget the sight. I worshiped the entire time. And when I got done, when I came out, I left. Didn't know anything. I just left. Two weeks later, I preached at the homeless mission. And a guy comes running up to me afterwards. And he says, you're the kid. I said, what? He goes, you were in 33rd a couple weeks back. I said, yes, I was. He goes, you came in. And you started to worship, and your face turned into a spotlight. He said, we all saw it and got on our faces. The Bible says, whoever looks to him, those who choose to look to him become radiant. And I believe that though it has many implications I think one of them is actually practical. As we look to him, our faces change. And I encourage you that the greatest need in the world today is radiant faces. It preaches without even preaching. Though we should open our mouths and proclaim the gospel, it's so much better when it comes forth from a lit face. I met Jesus the first day that I saw Steve Hill. His face was radiant with glory. Beaming with glory. And he wept about Jesus. And I said, I don't know what that is. But I was, in, I was deeply imprinted with the gospel that came from his face and his mouth. I gave my life to Jesus that day and was never the same again. So I tell you, adoration opens up the receptivity of the soul. And it brings you to something I like to call manifestation. What is manifestation? It's his presence, sensible. The sensibility of his presence. Will there be gold raining down in your closet? Probably not. It's happened. 
Will there be oil oozing out of your closet by manifestation? Probably not. But that's not what we're talking about. Manifest presence is literally the ability to sense his nearness. As a matter of fact, some people say, I never sense God. Let me tell you something. This is very dangerous. Because what the new life is, is the ability to perceive him. You were dead. Now you've been made alive. Alive to what? Alive to God. The new life means I can now hear him. I can now sense him. I can now communicate with him. What was the light given to It was given to your spirit to connect with his spirit. If people do not have any sense of God whatsoever, how could they possibly have received the life that causes them to sense God? The ear hears because of light, life in the ear. If you go to a dead body and you speak into his ear, he cannot hear you. Why? There's no life in the ear. If you open his dead eye and you wave to him, he can't see you because there's no life in the eye. And so it is with your faculty of your spirit, man. There was no life in it. You were dead to God. Now, because of the life that we receive through Jesus Christ, he who has the son has life. And he who has not the son has not life. That life has come in and quickened your ability to see, to sense, to be able to perceive God. Jesus says you must be born again to see. It is the perception of God that you're born again into. That's why Jesus says lovely statements like this. This is eternal life, to know God. You can't know God without experience of the Lord. Any more than you could know my wife by me showing you a picture of her. You've got to experience my wife in order to come to know her. Experience is how a person is known. If you take experience out of your relationship with God, all you've got left is loyalty to an idea. Men set themselves against the experience of God when they love the truths of God more than the person of God. But the experience of his person changes your knowledge into knowing him. It's experience that is indispensable. It is the knowing The Bible says in 1 John 5.20, it says, Jesus Christ has come that you might know him. To experience, this is why he came, was to open it up. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only sons. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. This life we see from John 17, this is eternal life, to know him. And so I'm saying all this to say, it is our spiritual born-again right to experience God. That's why the devil sets everything against it, because that's what makes you different. First Peter says this. He says, you've been sanctified by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means you've been taken apart from everybody else and put over here as those who have the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit makes you different than everybody else. What is that difference? You can hear God, you are his home now. Rodney Howard Brown says it like this. Having a couple coffees in experience, riding a roller coaster is an experience, having a baby is an experience. You're going to tell me that the triune God has set up his home in my body and I can't experience it? <laughs> he says, people say, God touched me, but I didn't feel anything. 
He says, that's like getting your finger shut in an automobile door when you say, oh, I didn't feel anything. No, if you've had a collision with God, you will know. And you can choose every day to ram into him. Every day. All you have to do is set your path on a, uh, set your face on a path called the Son of God. And you will see God every day. As a matter of fact, this is the secret of the Christian life. So how do we do this? Simple as can be. You remain absolutely bankrupt. I've got nothing. Your self-sufficiency sets you against him. So you throw out self-sufficiency by dependency. Oh, God, I need you. Colossians says, as you received him, so walk in him. How did you receive him? You said, oh, have mercy. So this, oh, have mercy should never leave. C.S. Lewis said, every day you start over as if nothing before has been done. What does that mean? It means every day I come to the point where I say, oh, God, I am deeply in need of you. Like the day I was born again. Daniel Kalinda and I were standing at the altar together. Todd White was giving the altar call. And Todd goes, turn to the person to your right and your left and ask them if they need to come down here. And Daniel goes, do you need to go down there? And I looked at him and I said, every single day. He goes, me too. (laughs) So here's the, I'm going to bring it all together here. This poverty, I need thee. And attentiveness. You have all my attention. Worship. Adoration. I adore you, Lord. This gives you the manifestation of his presence. You begin to sense the sweetness of God. What happens in the sweetness of God is you now turn in your resignation, which means the purpose of prayer is being accomplished by the nearness of him. That's why when we were lingering here, do you remember? Nothing was happening. It was just kind of sitting here. People get antsy at those moments, and they say, well, 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 what? What's going on here? What are we doing? I mean, let's do something here. It's because they don't know how to wait on God. But those that wait upon God, they recognize that is my home. I live here, just lingering with him. I mean, if you have 10 minutes to pray, as Pastor Benny told us, if you have 10 minutes to pray, you should take nine to worship. Take nine of those minutes just to adore Linger, lingering, I just worship you. I mean, how long does it take to say, oh, Lord, I need you to fix this problem? It's done. I just did it. Yeah, it's very simple and very easy. But worship is the good part. Let's just stay there. Just lingering and lingering. But people want to push past it. It's because they're self-conscious. All they think about is themselves. And so adoration opens the manifestation of his presence. Charles Finney said, cherish the slightest impressions of the Holy Spirit. You're worshiping, you begin to sense just the sweetness of his presence. What do you do? You turn attention to his presence. Why? Because that's him. There isn't a scalpel thin enough to separate Christ and his presence. He is his presence. And so you turn your attention to the sweetness of his presence and he'll swallow you up. He'll take you in and overcome you and you'll begin to experience the blissful overflow of all that he is flowing into all that you are and you'll be able to say every time he comes close, this was the greatest moment of my life. People say to me sometimes, what was the greatest experience with God you ever had? This morning, he came so close and I was maxed out. Tomorrow you say, what was your greatest experience with God? This morning he came in and I was maxed out with pleasure and 
peace and joy unspeakable and full of glory. There was a reign inside of my being that is unlike anything that can happen to me in this world. This is the greatest moment of my life, the nearness of God. And I'm telling you, this is the Christian life every day. New glorious experiences in the closet. And I'll just take a side note here. Listen, most of Christianity is trying to get pregnant with God's purposes by holding hands with Jesus. But nobody gets pregnant holding hands, man. You got to go behind closed doors and you got to shut that door and get intimate alone with God. If you want to experience the sweetness of God, there are certain things he will only do with you until you're alone. There are certain things he will only do with you when you're alone. Do you understand? Some people think that if they get around people who are pregnant, that they'll be pregnant too. Just kind of jump in the circle of a bunch of pregnant women and say, yeah, me too. It doesn't work like that. You can't just get around people who've been touched by God and then just, yeah, you too. Man, that's the danger with the intimacy movement is many people have only adopted the language. So they get around what's happening and they think they're happening. So many people get with God and they're waiting for something to happen, not realizing he is the happening. (laughs) Some people think that if they just memorize what to expect when expecting that they're going to get pregnant. What is what is what is what to expect when expecting? It's a massive book they give in America to you before you have a child so you can know what to expect when you're expecting. My wife wanted me to read it. So people think that if they just memorize what to expect when expecting, they're going to become pregnant. It doesn't work that way. Eric, nobody believes that. Yeah, well, some people think if they learn the Bible, they're going to get pregnant with God's purposes. You can't skip the closet, bro. You cannot skip intimate, direct, loving contact with God. Memorize it till you're blue in the face. Go ahead. It won't give you one ounce of experience without his presence. His presence cracks the scriptures open for the living voice to come out. And God can speak into you and you come alive. Because the currents that are locked up inside of here are broken open by the weight of God's presence, mental acrobatics and expositions and commentaries, they're not heavy enough to crack the outer shell of the scriptures. You need the weight of God's presence. The Bible is the only book that demands the author be present when it's read. You enjoy, you linger, you enjoy. The scriptures start breathing and looking at you. You think you're looking at them, but they're looking at you because they're quickened to life by the presence of God. Nobody gets pregnant just by reading. You have to get intimate with God. Some people think that if they just stand in front of a mirror and tell themselves they're pregnant, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, they're going to get pregnant. That's ridiculous. It's not possible. But some people actually believe in Christianity that if you just tell yourself who you are in Christ, that you're going to get pregnant. No. You cannot skip the closet. God will not share the throne of your heart with anything. He wants to sit there as a person, interactable person himself. Not as a theology, but in actuality. It's completely different to have your notes together and having his voice. The Pharisees knew what God said. 
they didn't know what God was saying. Jesus rebuked them, not because they weren't devoted, not because they didn't know the Bible, not because they weren't completely like moral and living their lives the way that they were. He didn't rebuke them. What he rebuked them for is, you've never seen him. You've never, you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. You have no perception of God whatsoever. There's no, you don't have any interaction with him whatsoever. That's what kills you. And why did they not? It's because they didn't let God reduce them down to faith. They wanted to hold on to their self-sufficiencies. So after adoration, there'll be a manifestation of his presence. You turn in your resignation. This is the reason why I'm here. I just linger with you. That's why I said lingering separates the men from the boys. Some people touch and they go. But to literally enter in and linger there, this is where the wonderful things begin to happen. The wonderful somethings happen in the midst of the sweet nothings. Take it from someone who has chosen to impose upon themselves for seasons of time, complete isolation. Literally locking away for days and even weeks at a time to do nothing. I find that it's the lingering that is where the change happens. I wait for you. We think it happens when we scrub the ground with our face and scream and, you know, put your nails into the carpet and yell at God until he finally decides to throw you a bone. It's not. It's in the enjoyment that the exchange takes place. It's in the fellowship with him. He enjoys to lay with you. This is what he wants. So once you've turned in your resignation, this is why I'm here. Now you're free. And now you can be led by little inclinations from the Lord. He begins to incline you towards the scriptures. He leads me by delight. All of a sudden, I feel as if reading the Bible is the most incredible thing I could ever do. I want to read the scriptures. I feel like this delightful bubble bursting up to get into the scriptures. I feel actually like hungry to read the scriptures. And every letter seems to be a bursting grape in my mouth. As opposed to chewing on an old rope like it was before the presence. I feel as if the scriptures are locked until he blows them into me. And so I'm there following the inclinations. And what inclination opens up is he gives you this material for meditation. You know what meditation is? Meditation is taking the light he's given you and holding it into the light that he is. In your light, we see light. David says, the unfolding of your words gives light. In other words, a fold is when one part of the paper is concealing the other part of the paper. So when you take one part off the part that's covered, now it unfolds and you see God's voice has many layers to it. And the scriptures begin to open up and you begin to see light as one part unveils the next part. And we begin to see meditation opens this up. As you meditate upon the the word, it just begins to open and open and open. So inclinations give you things for meditation. Meditation causes something I like to call revelation. You begin to see because God is showing it to you. And what revelation does is something that nothing else can. It gives you impartation. John Bunyan said, I never know a thing well until it's burned into me by prayer. In the same way, it's just like this. As you're 
in the scriptures and you're holding them up in meditation before the Lord, they begin to open up and he gives you a revelation of himself and that causes an impartation because whatever he shows you, he gives you. He gives by showing you. He opens your eyes and he imparts that thing to you. And so there it is. Revelation brings impartation. What impartation does, it causes a transformation in your mind. This is the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind is not memorizing scriptures based upon whatever you're going through. The renewal of the mind comes from interactive presence with God, Him speaking the scriptures into you. It changes. The entire ballgame changes. How do you know? I grew up reading the Bible. I went to Christian school all my life. I went to every Bible camp my parents could send me to. My dad was a pastor all my life. I was in church and Sunday school all my life. I did not know God. I could tell you a lot about the Bible. I memorized scriptures. They were on my wall. I could tell you by memorization actual things written in the scriptures verbatim because of all the schooling I had. But not one ounce of it was interactive fellowship with God until the presence of God came. Then the presence caused everything to come alive. And it was like they were living words and not just words that I had memorized. Impartation. Impartation causes a transformation of the mind. You know what transformation of the mind does? It makes you a demonstration of the thing. Do you want to be a demonstration? Well, there's only one way for a demonstration to actually come out of you. It's because of a transformation. Do you want transformation? Transformation comes from impartation. Well, where does impartation come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. It comes from revelation. Where does revelation come from? It comes from meditation on his word. And where does meditation come from? Where do you get it from? It comes from the sweet inclinations. What inclinations? The inclinations that come when I've turned in my resignation to disenjoy him. Your resignation to what? The manifestation of his presence. How did you access the manifestation of his presence? Adoration is the key. It's everything. If you don't get anything that I have said the entire time I've held this microphone, let it be this, that if your heart will adore him, your heart will see him. And if you see him, he'll take care of the rest. He'll infuse you and cause you to walk in his ways. He will guide you in the way you need to go. He'll so free you away from even know, wanting to know what's coming. You'll be so serene, you won't even, it won't even matter. As Brother Lawrence said, where does this adoration come from? Adoration's only real in concentration. Concentration rests on the foundation of poverty. I am deeply in need of you. Pride. Pride will destroy a prayer life. It sabotages a prayer life. Pride in its essence is self-sufficiency. There's nothing more prideful than self-sufficiency. Pride, as one one writer said it like this, it would be the last thing I say, we'll take a break. He said, learn humility because you cannot fight Satan with Satan. Another man said this, without humility, a man only has the appearance of virtues. They're not real. They just look like they're real. 
All right, so it's 3.15 right now. What I would really love to do is this. Let's take a 10-minute break. Get up, stretch your legs, use the bathroom or something. And we'll come back here, go right into Q&A. We'll pray and we'll be done. Is that okay? Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.